What I'd like to do this evening is to, instead of giving a, a formal uh, Dharma teachings, to give some sense of this uh, gathering of Western Buddhist teachers. There were about 220 Buddhist teachers from across uh, Europe and North America who gathered here. And we began with a passage in the introduction from the Buddha's advice to uh, his followers in the last year of his life, in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, just before he died. He said, as long as followers of the way, of the path of awakening, hold regular and frequent assemblies, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as they meet in harmony and break up in harmony, and carry on their business in harmony, may they be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as they honor their elders and the tradition from which they've come, as long as they live with integrity and virtue, as long as they care for the weak, the children, the environment around them, as long as they preserve their own personal mindfulness, as long as they do not fall prey to false desires, in such a way, as long as they come together in this kind of harmony, may they be expected to prosper and not decline. And so we had invited uh, Buddhist teachers from across uh, the West, both Asian and Western, and of course the Dalai Lama. And we also invited the Dalai Lama to give some public teachings here, hoping that he could do that for our community and at large in the valley. And initially, he agreed to do this. The invitations have gone back and forth for um, nine years now. And several years, after, in 1974, finally after kind of a num- couple of years of invitations, he finally agreed to come and give public teachings. But then in 95, excuse me, in 94, in 95, his schedule was canceled and we started all over again. By the time he finally agreed to come to this meeting, he'd become so well-known that they didn't feel Spirit Rock was big enough to do public teachings. Even with Thich Nhat Hanh, as you know, we had 2,500 people, but the uh, State Department and the Secret Service didn't feel like we could do five or 10,000 people here in the proper and safe fashion. Um, so he came, he actually flew in a little bit early to the West. He was going to come directly from India, but instead um, went via Washington two days before he came here to meet with President Clinton and a joint session of Congress. And after he arrived, I asked how that went. You know, what did you guys talk about? (laughs) He said, well, uh, he didn't give me much detail, which was, I think, quite appropriate, but he said he thought that it was actually a very fruitful, very helpful meeting. And the Secret Service, there there were 80 of them brought in, some of them got horses to ride up on the ridge and kind of check out what was happening. They set up little radio stations. I mean, the, the, the person I liked among them the best was uh, Linda Kinzer, who was the head of the State Department security for, this, for the West Coast, who's this kind of petite woman in her 50s with kind of frizzy hair, and she looks more like you'd meet her in the aisle in the supermarket somewhere. 
Um, but it, she let me know after a little conversation that she was an expert in live ordnance defusing and bomb, um, uh, safe bomb detonation and jungle warfare, and she was a colonel. She actually trains these guys, all these kind of beef, beefy 20-year-olds who were all her, her kids, right? Um, uh, and they were all completely happy to be here by the end all the Secret Service, they all wanted their pictures taken with His Holiness and him to sign the pictures and blessing cords. They were completely into it. So this was like, this was like the best. And of course, he was happy to do it. So um, they, were re- they, they were really wonderful. So we had this meeting, and during the time here, there was a kind of remarkable ambiance because there were people in orange robes and gray robes and brown robes and black robes and gold robes, and it was all kind of fluttering around like it was the the pure land or something like that. Um, And uh, there was Gelek Rinpoche and Sokni Rinpoche and Sogil Rinpoche and Zatchuji Rinpoche and Mahagosananda and Bhante Punaji and a number of the senior teachers from all different lineages in the West. <clears throat> and when we opened the council and I got to speak to people um, as a kind of invitation, this was the sixth of these uh, Western Buddhist teachers' meetings that we've had in the last ten years, three in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama and, and then three out here in the West Coast. Um, and I talked about how in the past there has been, even in the goodwill of, of the Buddhist tradition in Buddhist countries, uh, a, a reasonable amount of sectarianism between different traditions and ignorance and conflict. And even if you go to a teacher in Burma or Thailand or Tibet and talk about another teacher, very often they'll say, well, that teacher's not really very good. I really have the real, the real teachings. But it gets even worse than that, as people may have heard. And that we wanted to somehow, starting in the West, in the year 2000 especially, make a, a new intention that we could really learn from one another without this sectarian conflict. And in fact, I think it's probably not since Nalanda University, which was the great Buddhist university in India of 1,500 years ago or more, um, that so many different traditions were represented together um, in the way that they were at this, this conference or this council. Because what's happening here in America and in the West is that we now have access to the great spiritual teachings of almost every tradition. I mean, even in Marin, it's the Lama of the Month Club, you know? <laughs> and there's African shamans and medicine men, and there's ayahuasqueros from, from Peru, and there's you know, Mongolian throat singers who do special visualizations and we and, and Sufis and and we have this it's 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 if someone opened the holy books of all the traditions for us. And it wasn't always this way. Even in Buddhism there's been, as I said, a lot of not only conflict at times, but mis- misunderstanding. So when we invited Mahasi Sayadaw, who was one of the greatest uh, teachers in this tradition, our elder from Burma, um, to come in the 1970s to our East Coast Center in Barrie, Massachusetts. And he stopped on his way out of Burma for the first time coming to the West in Japan, went to Kyoto to a great Rinzai Zen monastery, and there everyone was sitting and doing koan practice, and they were working on this koan, the koan mu, 
which is uh, Joshu's Mu, the, the question or the koan. Uh, the, the, a student asked a Zen master, does a dog have Buddha nature a thousand years ago or more? Which normally in Zen, everything has Buddha nature. And the Zen master looked back and said, Mu, which means no. But it was kind of a puzzle. How could the dog not have Buddha nature? So you kind of sit with this puzzle. Does a dog have Buddha nature? So all these people were sitting in the room going, Moo! Moo! Out loud. And then once in a while, a man would come around and whack them with a stick. Now, Mahasi Sahada looked at this, people shouting moo about some dog, right, and getting hit by sticks, and just shook his head and said, this can't be the teachings of the Buddha. This must be something else has happened here. <laughs> There's another story of uh, Zen Master Samsonim, who's a very wonderful Korean Zen Master, a friend of mine, who met with Kalu Rinpoche, the kind of the eldest and most um, revered yogi in the Kagyu tradition to come to the West over a long period of time. They met at an airport with their translators. They were going from someplace or other. Um, and Zen Master Sansanim decided, as they do in, in Zen, to test Kalu Rinpoche. He's, this is supposed to be this great, enlightened Tibetan Lama. Let me give him a test. So he reached in his bag and he pulled out an orange. And he held up the orange and he said in his broken English, what is this? What is this? Um, what is this? He kept Now, a good Zen answer would be if Kala Rinpoche took the orange, opened it up, and ate a piece of it. You know, beyond all thinking, the orange is something to be experienced and not thought about. That is the Zen answer. <laughs> so he's going, what is this? What is this? To see if Kala Rinpoche understands. Kala Rinpoche turns to his translator and says, what's the problem? Don't they have oranges where he comes from? <laughs> So we started this meeting, and I started with this story with all these teachers, and I said, you know, in the West, we tell a funny story or a joke, and everybody laughs, and it brings us together, because we're all going our own direction. We're such cowboys and individualists, and in order to be in the room together, we make everybody laugh, and they realize, okay, I belong here. I'm part of this place. But if I were teaching in Asia, in Thailand or Burma, or places where I've practiced and taught, Instead of telling a joke, I would first apologize for being up here because compared to the wisdom of my own teachers, my, my understanding is very small. And many of you have practiced as long as I have, and I, I'm really sorry to even be put in this position of having to say something to you. What would be better is if some wise person were here, but this is all we have, so <laughs> doing the best I can, and my apologies. And then, because in those societies, um, in that culture, harmony is already there. People are already together. So when you sit up, you break the harmony. You have to reestablish the harmony so then we can proceed. So what we were looking for, I said, in this conference was somehow the middle path. Because Westerners get together and they like to talk, disclose their problems. Hello, my name is Jack. I'm a Buddhist. Um, or a recovering Buddhist, as you like, right? But in the cultures I've lived in, in in Asia, to talk about difficulties publicly is actually shameful. And you want to do those privately. What we want to do is create harmony together. So we're looking for some way to have a middle path of these meetings. And the most important thing we talked about from the beginning was the quality of listening. 
to one another. I mean, you'd think it would be obvious, but it isn't always, because there are conservatives, people who want to keep the texts and the traditions and practices just as they are in Tibet or Burma and not change them for fear the Dharma will get watered down. And then there are people who adapt and find new ways to work in schools and hospitals and prisons and new languages. And they often fight with each other. You're watering it down. Well, well, well you, you're, no one's going to be able to receive these teachings and so forth. And I told how in one of our teacher councils in the past, when we were in quite a bit of conflict, the Vipassana teachers on these, our, our Dharma psychiatrist who was helping us actually run the meeting, he sent out of the room the most conservative member, the person who was so dedicated to keeping it just like it was in Burma. And he said, if this teacher wasn't in the argument in the room but disappeared from the community, how would it affect the rest of you? And we sat for a moment and said, if he wasn't here, we would teach more conservatively. We would make sure that the sutras were studied and that the text were understood. But because he does that, then we can adapt and change things. And then our Dharma psychiatrist, who was Robert Hall, one of the teachers here, friend, he brought that person back in and sent out the most kind of non-traditional person that others were complaining about. And when he was out of the room, he said, now, if this teacher were not part of our community, how would that affect the rest of you? And we reflected on it, and many of us said, well, if he weren't here, then we would have to do what he does and, and offer teachings in new ways and experiment, because somebody has to do that. And we began to realize that it's not one person that holds the teachings of the Dharma, but that it really is held in a collective way. So the meetings included presentations and groups. There was a group on cyber dharma and teachers working on the internet. There was a group on translations, groups on teacher-student relations, on children and families in the dharma, on democracy, you know, and how we work in a democracy. From it coming from very traditional cultures, is democracy a good thing? You know, do we get to vote on the dharma? what's right and what's not? How do we include democratic principles in this new culture? And for the most part, it was carried on in a very open-minded spirit that was encouraged by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Were, oh, what was that? Oh, well. Zen, right. And, there were a series of councils. Um, one of them was called, was a council on uh, strong emotions. And a lot of people misunderstood it and they said, I'm going to come to the council on working with negative emotions, even though it was called simply strong emotions, which of course was the problem, that there was a number of people that thought that emotions were negative, right? But in fact, as the 60 who came to that council discovered, most everyone in the last 10 or 20 years or more of practice and teaching discovered how easy it is to use meditation for a spiritual bypass, basically, or an end run, and how important it is in spiritual life not to suppress feelings and that the point isn't to let go of them, but to allow them or let them be without getting lost in them, and that there's energy that can be gained when we work with passion or aggression um, that can be transformed into liveliness, into value, into an expression of life itself. 
and people talked about the ways they were learning to do it through meditation, through visualization, through sounding, through art, through a combination of meditation and psychotherapy and Tonglen. And there was a kind of congruence in the room from all these people. Yes, in the West, we really need to learn how to work with emotions in a different way than is so in a Japanese culture or Tibetan culture, which has a different relationship to emotions. There was a women's council. A lot of men wanted to go to it. They weren't allowed. And I can't tell you much of what happened there since I wasn't (laughs) present. But I do know that there was a sense of celebration because there were women teachers from more traditions sitting in that circle than had probably happened in a thousand or two thousand years. Um, And there was a lot of talk about bringing the voice and the role and the sensibility of the feminine into the Dharma, the, the sense of the relatedness, the non-aggressive, uh, non-warrior quality, the dharma of compassion. Um, and out of it, I think, will come a... In, in the next couple of years at Spirit Rock, there will be a council and a, and a long retreat for women teachers from all around the West just to come and sit and practice together. So that was very fruitful. There was a council on diversity because California is now more than 50% um, non-white people of color. That's us. But most of the Western Buddhist Sanghas, not the Asian-American ones that have come from Asia, most of them are middle class and European-American or white. And, and, and what a conflict this is um, for the principle that these teachings, if they're, if they're of value, really be available to everyone. And there's a wonderful book prepared by the Diversity Council in the Bay Area called Making the Invisible Visible um, and talking about from the point of view of many practitioners of the Dharma who were in communities of color, African American, Latino, Asian American, how difficult it was to come into such white communities culturally and what would, what would make it possible for them to practice. And the Dalai Lama became very interested in this. We had a long conversation about it. And he said, what is it that makes it so difficult? It seems like, you know, is it that it's too expensive? And money was certainly a point. We talked about scholarship. I said, no, there are many other reasons to him. I said, first, imagine if you're a a black person or a a, a Latino, uh, and you come into a room that is two or three hundred white people. Um, You might very well be afraid because the, the culture we live in has so much unconscious racism and your experience of it that it doesn't actually feel safe to be in the room. And he thought about it. He said, oh, I can understand that. And then he said, what else makes it difficult? I said, there are almost no teachers who are people of color. When you don't see a, a Latino or a Chicano or an African-American or Native American Dharma teacher reflecting yourself, then you wonder, well, is that possible for me? And I said, there's another reason. He said, what's that? That if you come into a Dharma center that purportedly teaches about suffering and the end of suffering, and your community and your people are suffering terribly, and the suffering of your people isn't mentioned, the fact that if you're born in a certain neighborhood in this Bay Area, which is really poor, and you're born black or Latino, the likelihood that you're child will end up in prison or end up in um, 
uh, in a gang fight <coughs> or end up in some terrible way, if you have a son that's born to you, the likelihood is more likely than not. It's like we live in Nazi Germany and people don't mention the Holocaust, that we have two million people in prison and most of them are people of color. And so until we acknowledge the suffering like we acknowledge the suffering of the people of Tibet, there isn't a place where people of color can feel safe in our sanghas. And he listened. He said, oh, I understand this. Now I see what has to be done. And in fact, at the end, uh, um, a number of us pledged over the next years until the next council to really actively work in ways to address this because it's such an important area. There was interfaith dialogue, a council on interfaith. And what came out of it, mostly people came out of the closet and they said, you know, after 25 years of practicing Dharma, I went back to my church and I listened to them singing, you know, the choir or the even song, and I loved it. And I realized how much I missed it and how it actually expresses some deep spirit. It's not that I, I'm not a Buddhist practitioner and don't want to do it, but now that I've gone back, now that I have a spiritual life, I see what the beauty that's there. There were all these monks and nuns talking about their Catholic and Jewish, and it was great, you know. Um, and every day the monastics met, these 50 monks and nuns from all these different traditions, and they, as my, my daughter who was there said, they bonded, you know. <laughs> She sort of does that tongue-in-cheek because after her first year in high school, they kept using that word, saying, now we want the freshman class to bond. So she'd come home and say, we're having another bonding experience, Dad. (laughs) But the monks and nuns really loved it. Um, And, of course, the issues of the equality of women came up, brought to the Dalai Lama, who's very much a supporter of that said we have to have councils of elders change the rules change the precepts but somebody said listen your holiness with all due respects you know the elders we've been trying to do that the elders aren't going to do it and Nalai Lama said well maybe we have to do it in the west then maybe we have to do it here in a different way and there were a wonderful presentation wow I see it's this just a second It's okay. We're, we're fine. You'll survive. It's just keeping you awake. That's right. There were wonderful presentations from Joanna Macy, who talked about ecological dharma and how the Buddha was born under a tree and enlightened under a tree and taught under the trees and died under the trees. And if we don't care, take care of the redwoods and the trees of the world, not only will there be no air for us to breathe, there'll be no place for us as Buddhists to sit. And <laughs> there was a, a pledge that she really asked the whole conference to take if we care for the lives of sentient beings to make our dharma and our teaching and our practice care for the earth. And the Dalai Lama has this wonderful proposal that the country of Tibet become an international ecological zone where there are no weapons and where the entire environment is kept as, a, as an entire nation as if it were an ecological park, which he's presented to the United Nations. And Bob Thurman stood up and talked about counter-revolution and how we live in a consumer society and we didn't want the Dharma, the, the teachings of the Dharma, to become just another consumer product. And how could we avoid that? What were the kinds of simplicity that we needed to model so that the, the values of renunciation would, would not get lost? 
And uh, Christopher Titmus brought up a very difficult question. There's this 450-foot-high statue of Maitreya Buddha being built in India in Bodh Gaya, which is in the poorest state of India, Bihar. And he said, it's a waste of money, $150 million. We could build schools, we could drill wells, we could feed the children. And then the other side stood up and said, well, it's our community that's building it, but with it, we're building a hospital, we're building a school, we're building a park, we're creating a whole environment to serve the, invo- the, the people, and we're going to bring in uh, pilgrims who will, over the years, uh, bring support to the community. There was this whole big dialogue about what was right to do in, in this kind of case. And questions about adaptations, how uh, the practices were changing um, from the very formal practices in Tibet, the kind of retreats that are looking for Western language and simplifying the visualizations. Pema Chodron talked about taking the traditional three-year silent retreat and making it now in her monastery six years, one year in and one year out, so you can integrate it year by year and how that worked better for Westerners. The Dalai Lama was very interested in and very affirming in a continual way with great clarity of mind and compassion and simplicity. He has a beautiful mind. Not only does he have a very good heart, but he has a beautiful mind which is a rare thing to say, as you know, if you've looked at your own mind. Um, (laughs) Because there's this sense of tremendous care and presence and compassion, but when he thinks about something, he does it, it feels like, in sitting with him in personal conversation and in the meetings, it really felt like sitting with Thomas Jefferson. He would say, now let's consider what makes this problem of diversity so difficult and what could we do in the Dharma to make it different. And you get the sense of somebody who is trained in clarity and understanding and wisdom and brings that together with this tremendous heart of compassion. It's a beautiful thing to experience. He urged us in meditation also not just to sit like birds in their nests or like a mouse, he did this thing. He said, you know, mice can sit, you know, or cats can sit watching for the mice. He said, what good does it do them, right? In a very fierce way, he said, you have to examine and test and reflect and think, is there less anger in me? Is there more forgiveness? Is there less fear? Is it doing any good? Am I still caught in my emotions and passions in an unskillful way? How is the practice working? And he said, you have to tell the truth about yourself and your teachers. You have to stand up if there are bad teachers and let people know this is the wrong teaching or this isn't the right dharma. Um, and when there were, there were 500 Tibetans who came as well for an audience, this room was just filled with these really wonderful, wonderfully dressed in their traditional um, finest clothes. Uh, the, all the Tibetans of Northern California came for a blessing. Um, And he gave them a hard time. He said, you know, it's not being with the Dalai Lama, and it's not just rituals and bowing and lighting a little incense and so forth. You have to practice generosity and kindness and meditate and work to change your own heart. Otherwise, you're not a follower of the Dalai Lama. He said, you must really look. The Dharma won't help you unless you transform your heart. He said, and this is the great human experiment to look and see that we can get entangled in things in this world and we also can find freedom. And you must find it for yourself. No one, not even Dalai Lama, can do it for you. And there was such a sense in this 
of willingness to experiment. He said at one point, not in the meetings, but in another conversation, he said, you know, actually, I am kind of looking forward to the day when I die. He said, because I've done so many trainings and meditations, I want to see if my meditations really will work. <laughs> Very interesting. John Kabat-Zinn talked about his work in hospitals. He said, hospitals are like a magnet for dukkha, for suffering. Everybody who comes there is suffering. They're sick, they're dying. He said, it's the perfect place to teach dharma. He said, but we don't do it as Buddhists. We simply teach practice as a relaxation, of compassion, of mindfulness, of finding inner peace, of freedom. And he now has work in 300 different hospitals and medical schools around the country. And so he asked, he said, there's so much suffering in the world. Um, does it make sense to teach in this way without calling it Buddhism? And the Dalai Lama got very excited. He said, absolutely. The point isn't to make more Buddhists. The point is to bring people the, the teachings of liberation that bring kindness and, uh, and freedom in any language and in any circumstance. Whatever will best serve the sufferings of the world is the teachings that you should offer. So then he was asked, as usual, about self-hatred, you know, and working with Western temperaments, how common there is unworthiness, or people who'd been in churches or religions where they were told they were sinful, that, that their birth itself was sinful. And he said, oh, sin is not a good term to use. You know, instead of original sin, we should talk about original goodness and about Buddha nature, about that beauty of the heart that gets clouded over by our, by our ignorance but shines underneath all the time. And, you know, in Tibetan culture, he said, it's so unusual to find uh, self-hatred and self-judgment. I think that's partly because Tibetan children are held all the time. If you go into a Tibetan community or village, the children are just passed from one person to another. They're never put down. They're always rocked and held and cooed and listened to and, and tended to. And after a while, they feel inwardly in their cells that they belong, that they're loved. And you, I've never seen such beaming faces, even in refugee camps, as the Tibetan children. He also explained that the word for compassion in the Tibetan language is a different word than compassion in English because their word does not, cannot be understood in any way that excludes oneself. We can talk about compassion as if it's for somebody else. But he said, no, no. The true compassion, he gave the Tibetan word, is the circle that is of all beings, including, and now that he's learned about how nutty we are, he said, especially, <laughs> especially this one here, especially oneself. So then we asked him about healing and blessings. So many come to him wanting healing and wanting blessings. And I said, all right, all these people come and they want your blessings. We as teachers would like to ask some questions. What do you do when you bless someone? And can others do it like you do? What, you know, what do you do? <laughs> and he said, me? I, I actually don't do very much. He said, there's not much I can do. When someone comes and wants a blessing and they're there in front of me, I visualize the Buddha and you could, even as he said that, I visualized the Buddha, excuse me, you could feel that for him to visualize the Buddha was the most beautiful and sacred thing he could do. I visualize the Buddha, and I see the Buddha with that person, and then I pray that they may awaken, that they may be well. He said, that's all that I do. 
So simple. So simple, right? Everybody lined up for his blessing. All the teachers, every, me first, I want the blessing. Me, you know. And it's his love and, and his purity, incredible kind of purity and innocence. Um, he was asked at one point um, about going back to Tibet and the Chinese, these kind of negotiations on and off, if he would be willing for Tibet to be part of China but just have an autonomy for religion and culture, which he's agreed to. But then the Chinese wanted him also to say that Tibet had always been a part of China. And he said, you know, I cannot do that. I would like to do that for my people to save our country. He said, but, but this tongue has never spoken a lie, and I cannot do it even now. What an amazing thing to say about the tongue, huh? <laughs> so that's part of the blessing. It's just the blessing of someone whose integrity is that great. And then when he was asked about healing, he said, people come to me for healing. I, I don't know how to heal anybody. He said, he said, I'm not even sure I believe in healing. We said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, many people have come to try to demonstrate healing. He said, but if they were so good, then I wouldn't have this skin rash for 30 years. <laughs> he said, finally, I found a good doctor in France who gave me some medicine and it went away. He said, that's healing. <laughs> It was very, this is kind of this straightforwardness and modesty. And he said, um, we, we asked about the teacher role, and I said to him, you know, when one becomes a teacher, there are all these different roles one gets in. One becomes the, an administrator, and a minister, and a confessor, and a guru, and people expect things. For example, I tried to explain in a simple way, if someone's parents died when they were young, they might come to a teacher and want you to be their father or their mother, you know. Or if someone's lonely and lives alone by themselves, they may want you in some way to be substitute for their husband or their wife in some, some way. And I asked, um, what do you do when people come and they have all these needs and all these expectations? Does this happen to you, I said. And he said, of course it happens, you know. He said, um, people will come to me and they'll have so many expectations. He said uh, that I should be their father or their husband. He said, let me tell you an example. He said, recently, last year, I was teaching a great uh, group of people in Germany. And one woman raised her hand. And she said, you know, I look at you and I've come to all your teachings every time you come to Europe. And I have to say this because I need to ask this question. Please forgive me. But I have this tremendous love of you that, that is both dharmic and romantic. I have all these fantasies about you as a partner and, and so forth. And what I want to know is this, it, is this unskillful. Should I not do that? Because it inspires me and I practice more and I, I think of you all the time and it makes my meditation deeper. It, it seems to be helpful, but it is, the wrong, is it the wrong way of practice? And he said, I reflected about it. And the Dalai Lama has this amazing vow that a Dalai Lama takes. Um, part of his name is the ocean of compassion or the ocean of wisdom. And his vow says that if there is a stream that others cannot cross over, may I be the bridge to cross over that stream. And if beings are thirsty, may I be the water that... Uh, 
quenches their parched lips. And if beings are sick, may I be the medicine and the healing for those who are sick. And if beings are in need, may I fulfill their needs. So he said, I thought of my vows and I looked at her and I said, if you think it is truly helpful and not delusion in your practice, then you may do so. And everyone sat just taking that in, you know, that he said, whatever I can do to be of service, I will do. And then he looked up and he said, but. (laughs) Everyone laughed. Another woman came to me in Dharamsala, a Russian woman, and she said she was coming because she knew she was supposed to marry the Dalai Lama, (laughs) that we were supposed to get married. And he looked, he said, I looked at her, and even though I don't use this word, and he was smiling when he said, I looked at her, and I said, this is sinful. <laughs> he said, you must put those thoughts out of your mind. I am a monk. You are not a monk. We will, we, I will be your teacher, but I cannot be your husband. And he was really laughing about it. <laughs> we talked about devotion and how to teach devotion in the West because there are, in Western culture... Um, there are many, many people who um, are unbelievers. And, you know, we're, we're so individualistic and you've got to show me and we're anti-authoritarian. Um, and he said, this is a very good thing, that Westerners shouldn't start with devotion. They should start with the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the cause of suffering, grasping, the freedom from suffering, the path, wise speech, wise action, wise contemplation and meditation. And try it out and learn, not blind devotion, but experiment and experience and find the freedom for yourself. Find out if practicing forgiveness or compassion changes your heart. He said, and you, you, you know, you must really instruct students not to be devoted in any blind way, but to look into their own experience. Um, And then, of course, he said, there may be some people who are devoted in the beginning, and that's also fine, but whoever it is, they must discover in their own hearts that the Dharma is totally trustworthy, that the teachings of the Buddha are trustable and trustworthy, and no one can give that to another. He also said, because we asked, you know, devotion is such a big practice in Asia, but Western teachers, the Western lamas there and others, um get uncomfortable when students want to visualize them and put their pictures on the altar. It's a different game than than the cultures of Asia. Would it be appropriate for Western teachers to be objects of devotion and have their students do, you know, guru yoga and visualize their images and things like that? Because a lot of them kind of hold back from that. And he said, you know, if you are in the role of a teacher, you must be willing to carry whatever is necessary to benefit your students. And in fact, there was a, a story that I thought of um, about holding the role honorably. Um, Bo Lozoff, who runs the Prison Ashram Project for the last 30 years, when he first started to um, write to prisoners and write to people in prison about the possibility of meditating and making your prison experience of some value to you. He corresponded with dozens and dozens of prisoners in different prisons. And after a year or so, he began to visit them. And he went to one prison, he said, and there was an old African-American man who had been practicing yoga and meditation according to the books and letters that Bo had sent. 
And Bo met this man, and the man said, I've been waiting for you to come. You are my teacher. I have a I, I want a picture of you for my wall, and you know, I'm doing yoga, and it's meditation, it's changed my life, my mind is peaceful for the first time in, you know, 58 years, and you are my man. And Bo said, no, I'm not. You know, I'm just offering books, I'm offering what my teachers gave to me, I'm not your teacher. And the man was really crestfallen, and Bo went back home, and uh, he didn't sleep, he was so upset by that encounter and he didn't go back into a prison for a year he said I realized that I couldn't go back into the prisons until it was okay if someone looked at me and said you're my teacher and I said yes thank you you understand that so that the the role has a certain responsibility on our part but there's also a responsibility, as the Dalai Lama said, on the part of the students, not to listen to your teachers, but to test it out and really observe them. He said, you must spy on your teachers <laughs> and make sure that what they say is really how they live. You go spy on your teachers. So don't take it so carefully. He also said there's no quick way, you know, there are all these advertisements, even Tantra, that you will get enlightened, the claims if you do three years of this Tantric retreat, you will be enlightened. He said, hmm, I did three years of this Tantric practice, I did not end up enlightened at the end of it. He said, I think some of this is just propaganda, marketing, he said. Um, in fact, sometimes I practice and I don't seem to change very much. And everyone was kind of looking. He said, but then when I look back over 20 or 30 or 40 years of my meditation, I see, hmm, it has made a big difference. <laughs> Maybe not so visible, you know, one moment or one week or one year, but over the years, it has made a big difference. And what's important, he said, is the dedication, however long it takes to turn our hearts and our life in the direction of compassion and wakefulness and forgiveness and caring for the well-being of everything that breathes, not to do it superficially, not to do it quickly, not to lose the depth of the Dharma, but to realize what the Buddha taught is true for us, that we can transform our hearts, that it is possible to be liberated that we can be liberated from fear, from aggression, from ignorance, that this is a human possibility. And what matters then is our dedication and our repeated motivation, he said, that in each act to listen for the intention. Why is it in these words or this conversation or this business deal or this encounter in the family, what is my deepest intention? And is it the intention of compassion? Is it the intention for the well-being? That place of question of one's motivation is the guide for awakening the heart. There was a beautiful old um, nun, Dr. Karuna Dharma, from Los Angeles, who had had a stroke and wasn't able to get around very much. And she was on one of the panels with the Dalai Lama. And she said, I can't get out and teach very much anymore. She said, so what I do is I try to teach online and in correspondence, and I decided since I couldn't go to my Dharma centers and communities anymore, I would offer my teachings um, over the Internet and, and by correspondence. And I also work with prisoners. 
She said at first it was a dozen and two dozen. Now it's 85 or 90 a week. And I just sit in my study and I write letters or I correspond. I've made a one-year course where they can study meditation and, and uh, um, do the practices of mindfulness and compassion. And if after one year it's been a value to them, then we make a ritual online where they will take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And I continue. She said, I can't do very much, but this is all I can do. What do you think, Your Holiness? <laughs> Yeah, it was just so sweet to see them together. Oh, blessings together, your blessings. We asked him as a community when we had the board and staff and teachers together how to deal with conflict. And he smiled. He said, oh, conflict. Conflict is natural. It happens all the time. It is a part of human life. So what we must do is to talk together, to listen together, and especially to learn to listen with kindness when you are in conflict. And then he was speaking about the importance of counsel, that kind of listening together, making counsel, finding consensus, working together until one could find some agreement. He said, and if you can't find consensus, then together you must come together and vote. And he said, even if it's 50-50, he said, well, vote, you let the majority rule, but if it's 50-50, then maybe do a divination or throw the dice See what they say. <coughs> he actually suggested to us that we might consider uh, creating a council of elders for Western Buddhism. Uh, maybe, I, I think actually it should be elected from all the Buddhist communities for North America that could help when there are really difficult issues that come or also in, that co could coordinate the concerns, whether it's Tibet or Burma or Cambodia or, or other places in difficulty. Um, the Dalai Lama said, continuing about conflict, he said, you know, even if you solve a conflict today, there will be another conflict tomorrow. So that Dharma practice is to be able to take conflict and make it a part of our way of compassion. He said, even myself, um, he said, I even have conflicts in my dreams. Sometimes I go to sleep and there's a conflict when I'm sleeping. So the conflicts are not the difficulty the problem is how can we work with them? The Dalai Lama comes in so many people's dreams. How many of you have ever dreamed about the Dalai Lama? Yeah, probably 20 people in this room. Um, and think, multiply that around the world. I think there's probably, you know, tens of thousands of people every evening who are dreaming of the Dalai Lama. I asked him about it. He said, me, I just go to sleep. You know? <laughs> I don't know what happens. I just go to sleep. But I think people dream of him or think of him because he represents the best of us. He represents what's possible. And we can even think, what would the Dalai Lama do in this situation? And all of a sudden, this beautiful understanding arises because there's so much uh, compassion that he exhibits, even in the face of tremendous suffering. And he wakes up every morning at 3.30 and does five hours of prayers and meditations and, and uh, visualizations and so forth. My daughter, Caroline, who's uh, 15 and a half, she was working on the video crew for this, helping um, for the week. And so she was taping him and watched. And she said she was really amazed. One day she came home after being around him for a couple of days. She said, you know, Dad... It's like he's born every minute. 
She said, I see him go down in the line of blessing people, and each person, he's more present for each person than anybody I ever saw. Or I see him answering questions, and he stops, and he just listens to that question. And it's like he's born anew and gives a whole new answer. She said, that would be a wonderful way to live, to be born anew every minute. The Dalai Lama also asked us to please help the people of Tibet so that their, the beauty and the richness of their culture you know, and their spiritual tradition doesn't die out. And we said, what should we do? What can we do? He said, first, go to Tibet, travel, take your friends, take your students, take your teachers. He said, there's nothing more inspiring to the people of Tibet than to have practitioners go to the temples and see that people in the West really value their culture. <coughs> he also said, talk to any Chinese people that you know, the ones that live in the West. Explain to them, get them to understand, because the Chinese community in exile has a very big impact on the community in China itself. We also talked about um, trying to free the Panchen Lama, who is this young boy that is, um, after the Dalai Lama, the second most revered Lama in Tibet, who was taken away and hidden um, after he was uh, um, after he was acknowledged as being the new Panchen Lama. When he was seven or eight years old, the Ch Chinese Communist government took his family away, and he's, he's not been seen for five years. Um, but he actually would be the interim successor, in a way, when the Dalai Lama dies. And there's this very good pack for writing letters to Congress and ambassadors and so forth that I'm going to get 500 of and bring here and give to people who want to help in support of freeing the Panchen Lama. So there were a lot of things he thought we could do. Most importantly, there was a kind of cross-fertilization. There was one great Tibetan Lama who was so inspired by the monks from Thailand, he said, I think I will go to Thailand and practice in one of the monasteries there to learn your tradition because it's so beautiful. Um, and the women who said, yes, we're going to have a, a, a women's teacher's council for North America that grows out of this conference. And the monastics who decided to continue to meet across traditions and the, the Soto Zen teacher who said, I now understand the relationship better between our Zen practice and the Vajrayana teachings and I want to go and study with these teachers. And, and um, by the end, I felt very um, blessed as a community to have been able to host uh, so many people um, who could listen and learn from one another in such an honorable way. And when the Dalai Lama left, he blessed this land and he blessed all the activities of it that it might continue and prosper and, um, and uh, really serve as a, a lamp, uh, a light in the dark, as, a, as medicine for those who need it. And at the very end of the council, after the Dalai Lama had gone, one of his good friends, who is a, uh, also a teacher of mine, the Venerable Mahagosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, the Patriarch of Cambodia, sat up there and did a, a chant of loving-kindness meditation. Um, Mahagosananda had walked through Cambodia during the war on a peace march, barefoot, through all the worst 
areas of Khmer Rouge fighting every year, and sometimes there there was machine gun fire and grenades lobbed at the peace march, and they would just keep walking and chanting for peace and doing the chants of loving kindness in every province of Cambodia. But a lot of times, soldiers would come out of the woods and they'd bow at his feet and they'd offer him their their weapons or their bullets and say, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And so Mahagosananda was here. He's, a, he's just this ball of loving kindness and compassion. He's almost 80, and he's a little bit senile. So he doesn't quite remember where he lives, what room he's in. We had to have someone tend to him or... <laughs> even sometimes how to do his robes right. So his mind is kind of gone. He'd been a scholar. He knew 15 languages when I studied with him, French and German and Vietnamese and Sanskrit and Pali and Thai and Lao and Chinese and whatever. Um, and he gave a few moments of exquisite teachings on compassion um, and the sharing of merit in the refuges. Um, his mind is gone, and so what's left is he lives in the present, and he loves everybody he meets. And you just feel it. It's like this. In fact, Brother David Stendelrost, who was at the t- conference at Thomas Merton's monastery of Buddhist and Christians a couple of years ago with, with the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda and a number of different elders, he came back and he said, who is this little orange ball, this wonderful wise old being who, is, who upstaged the Dalai Lama at the meeting there? I said, oh, you must mean Mahagosananda. So Mahagosananda led us in the last chants and prayers, and then he sat there and he took the blessing cords that the Dalai Lama had made and he placed them around each person's neck. And it was this beautiful coming together of traditions. Of, I mean, here was this monk from Cambodia handing out the Tibetan blessing cords. And it was, just, it was just a wonderful way to end. And so with that, I will also end my stories. And let us just sit for a moment or two. And my wish is that even one of these, one little story of all of these, uh, touches some place in your heart that reminds you who you really are and what you most deeply love in this world, and that you can carry that and nurture it and practice it and develop it so that that spirit becomes uh, visible in your thoughts and words and deeds. And let's do a little chant before we go. Come on, you guys, even those standing in the back. A one-syllable chant. The chant is ah. And ah is opening of the breath and the body and the heart and mind, letting go so that we can be empty to meet each new moment fresh. Ah. Add harmony.
Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.